we said we're going to take care of our team and we're going to take care of our customer and everything else will take care of itself. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on August 24th, is a conversation with Colin Connolly, the CEO of Atlanta-based Cousins Properties. This is the first of several episodes that will focus on the now everyone's talking about it office market. Our next episode will be a conversation with Scott Reckler from RxR. So we're contrasting the performance and drivers of office and the Sunbelt markets in today's interview with what the headlines so often focus on New York in the conversation with Scott. This was a fascinating conversation with Colin with a nuanced message about office. Cousins is doing great with their strategy of trophy office in the Sunbelt markets, what they call their trophy lifestyle office portfolio, and indeed they meaningfully outperform the rank and file Class A office properties in their markets. We've heard from others, notably Owen Thomas from Boston Properties, and you've heard the same theme across the industry that the highest quality Class A office buildings in most markets are doing well. But alongside the theme of strong Class A, Colin says that the overall office stock in our country is not just overbuilt, it's under-demolished as an asset class. As we start to find a new normal in our work-from-office and work-from-home rhythm, there will be a realignment within that important sector, within our downtown fabrics, and from the social and capital market recalibrations that will result. It's good to know that well-capitalized lifestyle office will likely be one of the anchor points amidst all of this change, but this will be no one-size-fits-all evolution. I'll be spending the month of September with my wife in New York on both ZRG business and personal matters, and I'm looking forward to experiencing life and commerce in the Big Apple in these times firsthand. I'll be taping our next two shows in New York, first with Scott providing point-counterpoint to many of the themes from this episode with Colin, and then a special episode with the Chief People Officer at Heinz, Stephanie Birnbaum, and Doug Holty, CEO of EXP of Heinz, each of whom will be talking about the meaningful evolutions to the product, particularly Doug talking about Heinz's innovations, and also talent, culture, and business platform of a global real estate enterprise required in these times. This conversation will be the first, although certainly not the last, chief talent officer on Leading Voices, since you all know that change and increasing sophistication of the business platform in real estate is one of the podcast ongoing themes, and certainly a large part of the mission of my work at CRG. One of the crazy things about podcast technology is that we as hosts do not really know who you are. And it's odd since we have this actually intimate in-the-ear relationship. I do have a mailing list that I send an e-blast out to with every episode, but it's an old mailing list and it has no relationship, I think, to those who are actually listening to the show. So that we can communicate at least a bit, I have a favor to ask. Please invite me on your LinkedIn and in the invitation say that you're a Leading Voices listener. I do send a LinkedIn post out to my contacts with every episode, and if you'll all join my LinkedIn network, then you'll get those e-blasts, and maybe we can start a bit of dialogue about the episode in these posts. Thank you in advance for that easy connecting step. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. 
please do invite me as a contact on your LinkedIn. And if you have a few minutes, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. And as always, if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how CRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at crgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Colin Conley, uh, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thank you so much for being on the show. This is our post-Labor Day back-to-school episode and a kickoff of a two-episode conversation about that really hot topic, which is the office business in real estate right now. We're speaking today about your take on the office business from the perspective of Cousins Footprint of Class A in the Smile States. In two weeks, I'm going to talk to Scott Reckler from RxR about office in New York, which is often the headlines that we read about. I read the Times too much, but that's where I see it. And this is one of those quickly evolving issues that we talk about at every conference and every thought on real estate. So I'm really excited to get your take on this part of the business and your company. So the place I always start is just with that as that that is preface and a frame, just introduce yourself, introduce the headlines of your company, and then we're going to jump into it. Terrific, uh, Matt. Well, I appreciate you uh, including me on your podcast. I've listened to it uh, a few times before, so excited to participate. Um, I'm Colin Connolly. I'm the president and CEO of, of Cousins Properties. I've been uh, in this role for about uh, five, just about five years now. I've been with the company uh, about 12 years. And you know, I'd simply describe Cousins uh, in our strategy is a you know, Sunbelt Trophy office read. We today own about 19 million square feet, uh, predominantly uh, tri- trophy li- lifestyle office. Uh, we're headquartered here in Atlanta, Georgia, but have a, a footprint uh, across the entirety of Sunbelt. Other major markets for us are Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas, a large presence in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Tampa, Florida, Tempe, Arizona, and we're building a, a large mixed-use project, uh, which is our uh, initial foray into Nashville, Tennessee. Uh-huh. And have you done much mixed use before? Is it all office with retail on the ground floor, or is there much mixed use throughout your portfolio? We've got we've got quite a bit of, of mixed use in in the portfolio today, and the, the predominance of our portfolio are in urban locations within the the markets I just mentioned. And uh-huh. you know, typically as we pursue those projects, uh, you're you're increasingly seeing kind of more of a mixed use component, primarily driven by land prices. So we've got experience uh, executing those type of, of mixed-use projects. Uh-huh. And when you say trophy office in the Sun Belt, talk about what trophy office means, what it might have meant pre-pandemic, but what it means now, and then the performance that you've had specifically in the trophy, not the commodity office class. Yeah, so I, I think that the definition of, of trophy uh, is, is evolving, and and I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think another term that uh, that we use quite a bit now, which is kind of trophy lifestyle uh, office. And and I think historically, when one would uh, think about or describe trophy office, it would be specific to that individual asset and the quality of that building, perhaps the amenities that were inside of of that building. Uh, I, I think today, from a Cousins' perspective, when we when we think about trophy lifestyle office, it's not just the physical quality of that building, but it's also the experience outside of your building and the the, the amenities and the vibrancy 
of the neighborhood that you sit. And, and I think today that's as, as important, if not more important than perhaps uh, what's actually between the four walls of, of the building that you own. Mm-hmm. And in your neighborhoods, I think we're, we're going to come back to some of this later, but if we think about the places where your offices are located, and you know I'm in the Bay Area and I spend time in San Francisco, which has been particularly hard hit in the downtown neighborhoods, if that's the right word. How have your locations been? How has the Sunbelt kind of locations hit in terms of post-COVID back to office occupancy vibrancy in those neighborhoods yeah for sure i, I think the the experience um with you know during covid and coming out of covid ha- has been different a- across different parts of the country and yeah. there's a lot of different a lot of different reasons for that uh, i think within our markets kind of our neighborhoods in in the sunbelt i'd say that those those neighborhoods were closed for kind of a far shorter time and kind of return back to kind of more normalcy, you know, much, much quicker. And so, you know, today, whether you're in Midtown Atlanta or downtown Austin or the South end of Charlotte, uh, again, the, the, those, those, those markets, those neighborhoods, those streets are, you know, feel, feel, feel very good. And again, I think a lot of that energy and vibrancy is back and more people back to work more people at, at restaurants. And that's certainly shown up, I think in our portfolio, and, and obviously kind of this, this utilization, this term that none of us talked about before COVID is, is certainly front and center. And, and we've seen, you know, our portfolio of trophy lifestyle office kind of re- return back to kind of higher levels of utilization than, than you would you typically read in kind of the Wall Street Journal article with the latest numbers from Castle. Right. And someone said to me that like castles counted in New York, but not in some other places. In your markets, does the castle number, is it as relevant as it might be in a New York market? Because you may not have as much screening to get in and through. No, that's it. That's exactly right. And, and actually, castle doesn't even publish numbers, you know, on Atlanta. They, they do. They're in our market. And it's a great company. And I think it's a company that was doing its best to, to give you know, some level of information you know, to, to to the market, but but when you really really drill down in in our markets in the Sun Belt, there there isn't typically the same level of security uh-huh. kind of getting in and, and and out of buildings and the angel wings and and badging in and out, and so I think it's a little less precise and scientific in the Sun Belt markets for that reason. Right, and it's interesting. I think Sun Belt markets, in some ways, and we're, we we don't want to be political here, but there's a red state blue state thing and a cultural thing about both back to work in different cities and different locations and almost as much cultural difference in the states as there is between the states and and some Asian countries and, and countries in Europe in terms of, yes, I want to go back to work. In fact, I need to go back to work. Any comments on kind of the attitudes towards back to work, not government attitudes, but people attitudes in these different markets? Yeah, and, and it, it when you look at Kind of the the sun, the sunbelt markets, as I, as I mentioned earlier, they they stayed closed for for a much shorter period of time, and, mm-hmm. and people did return back in a much quicker. And I, I think there are some political and cultural kind of reasons for that. You know, there's also some some characteristic differences in how people uh, in mar- markets like Austin or Atlanta get to and from the office than they do perhaps in 
you know, Manhattan or San Francisco where they're much more reliant on kind of mass transit. And mm-hmm. so in our markets, they're still, uh, while we've got some great mass transit in some of our markets, they're very much driving cities. And uh, and so I think that facilitates, facilitate, facilitated less of a health risk during the peak of COVID. Right. But I think it's also, you know, easier to commute in and out of and get to work than perhaps, you know, an hour train ride from, you know, Connecticut, you know, in into Manhattan and then, you know, a 15 minute walk to your, your building. I think in a, in a market like Atlanta, you can get to and from your office. Most people is kind of within 30 minutes. Um, so I, I think that has helped bring more people back, you know, quicker. Um, as we look backwards into the pandemic, you know, I think, again, to stay away from the political divide, but we saw it within even some of our own markets mm-hmm. where, you know, I'd say the, 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 the local and city leadership in all of our markets here in the Sun Belt, which are characterized generally as red states, mm-hmm. are very much blue cities. But, but those blue, blue cities sit inside red states. And so there was a push and a pull uh-huh. uh, amongst leadership that, you know, cr- created the opportunity for people and businesses to get back a little bit quicker than they did in some others. And I just look within our, our own footprint, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina, out of all of our markets, probably was the slowest mm-hmm. to return back to more normalcy. And, and that's the one city within our footprint where there's, you know, certainly kind of blue local leadership, but, but also, a democratic governor and and again that's not a political statement it right. was just the reality that that state and that city stayed a little bit more closed than you know atlanta or tampa uh-huh. i want to go into the story of the pandemic for you and then talk about work from home and what the new normal is going to look like so i, I want to get there but just a couple of quick uh, headline comments to give some perspective on this because one of the things i read on your website your performance headline, your rents in your markets are 23% higher than class A in your markets, not just than average office. So your trophy lifestyle has played out that way. Kind of comments on how that's done against the overall industry, as well as same store sales in the same store markets. Yeah. And so our, our portfolio has, has certainly outperformed uh, from a rental rate perspective, and I'd say generally from an occupancy perspective, kind of relative to the the Class A and the overall markets, and again, that's a function of owning, you know, the highest quality buildings in really attractive locations with kind of vibrant, you know, energy in uh-huh. the neighborhoods around it. And so we've been able to we've been fortunate to to be able to drive kind of rental rate growth uh, throughout the the pandemic, and I think. Cousins, we're, we're a publicly traded company. We publish results kind of every quarter on the quarter. And I think we've had roughly 36 straight quarters of increases in our same store cash kind of rents um, so that the, the 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 new lease has been anywhere from kind of 8 to 10 percent on average higher from a rental rate perspective than the, the lease that expired. And you'll have the answer to this. I don't. How does that compare to the overall office REIT sector, not just at Class A, but overall office? Because the headlines we see are the overall office doesn't look good. That, that's right. And, and again, I think if you, if you took Cousins' results from you know the rental rates that we're driving relative to the, the average in our markets, we, we've certainly been a, a top quartile performer, if, if not you know, the top over the last five years of, of being able to, to drive rental rates. And again, that's been a function of 
the quality of the assets that we own, but but we're also continuing to benefit from you know some of these tailwinds. The the migration to you know the Sun Belt has has certainly helped uh, boost demand you know in our markets. Uh, that's probably outpaced you know some some of our uh, competitors that perhaps in in um, you know other markets outside of the Sun Belt. Right. So that's not just I, I should know this and be thinking about this. It's not just the markets in and of themselves. So as people are leaving San Francisco to go to Austin, then that's going to drive demand obviously in Austin, not just Austin itself being a different model of of work from home or whatever. Th- that's right. And you know I, I would broadly characterize. You know, Cousins' strategy, as I mentioned earlier, to to build kind of the leading Sunbelt trophy office suite, and and we really started that strategy, gosh, over ten years ago, and when when we made some intentional decisions to to focus the company, mm-hmm. and that decision was rooted in you know two really powerful secular trends, which was this migration to the Sunbelt. As companies were trying to distribute their workforce more broadly across the country, uh-huh. and recognizing that places like downtown Austin and Midtown Atlanta had had grown into really attractive, interesting places where they could re- recruit talent, uh-huh. and then secondly, a, a pretty meaningful flight to quality amongst you know our customer base and and a desire um, even b- well before COVID to have their employees in the highest quality buildings that would attract and retain, you know, the highest and best talent. And so there's been a bit of an arms race there. And, and so we made that intentional decision to, to try to go build that leading trophies, you know, Sunbelt Trophy office read with these powerful tailwinds behind us. And let's drill into luck versus opportunity here, because you're based in Atlanta. I figure, and I know you've had stuff in San Francisco, and I don't know the breadth of the portfolio geographically prior to this realignment, but there are two separate realignments. One is into purely Sunbelt markets, and then the other is to go higher end. So two concurrent decisions one, maybe because you're in Atlanta, you might as well do Sunbelt, even though those trends, because others were then going, no, I'm sorry, we have to be in the sexy six or whatever they call them. So, Yeah, so we really embarked on that strategy about 12 years ago when I, when I joined uh, Cousins. And, you know, at that time, you know, C- Cousins found itself in uh, you know, coming out of the global financial crisis in kind of an interesting and, and tough time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the company was you know, really over levered and subscale, you know, market cap of about $500 million and, and was really a diversified uh, company, which is a bit unique in the public REIT space. And so the, the company uh, and was very much concentrated you know, really just in Atlanta. And so the company owned office, we also owned retail, we owned some industrial, uh, we owned some land. Uh, and and I think the, the feedback that we heard from our investors is we want a company in the public space that's really good at kind of one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't want to invest in a in a company that that is so diversified, we the investor want to go place our bets in office and industrial and multifamily and go pick the best of breed 
in each of those sectors. And so, you know, we've really found ourselves at an inflection point and, and um, you know, the team as a whole and our, with the support of our board decided to focus the company where we thought we had the most relationships and the, and, and a competitive advantage. And, and that really was in the, the office space. And then, you know, just, as I said, evaluated the market and the trends that were happening and really honed in on this migration to the Sun Belt and the flight to quality. And we said, let's go build a company and position it right at the intersection of those two trends. And so we've we've been we've been at it now for, as I said, for, for 10, 10 plus years. Uh, and in many cases, the you know, the pandemic and what's transpired the last three years, I think, has accelerated those trends. And, and I think really started to shine a, a spotlight that those trends were in fact occurring. But but the initial part of our, as we were executing that strategy, I think there were, there were many that um, continued to believe that the, that the gateway markets would, would outperform the Sunbelt. And, um, and again, th- those are all, you know, terrific markets. We decided to focus on what we knew best uh, which which was the Sun Belt. Yeah, it's so interesting. So one is there were a bunch of REITs 15 years ago that were local REITs and did everything in their markets. So you're among them that then repositioned into single asset class with a focus and fingers crossed that focus is going to be good. I remember so many conversations at ULI in different rooms where the debate was Sun Belt versus Gateway Cities. And for a long time, it was always Gateway Cities, and the Sun Belt snuck up and bit on the butt all of those who made a sole bet on the Gateway Cities, in part because of COVID. But both the, that and the long-term trends were there. So you made the right bet and the right repositioning of the company. Well, there's still um, it, it it is it it has served us well, you know, over the last ten years, and, yeah. and certainly we're continuing to, to look forward. And, and again, I think the, the, the gateway markets, I think are going to prove to be more resilient than, than many kind of give them credit for uh, today. And, and I think really kind of what's happened is it's not from our perspective, it, it isn't that the gateway markets are bad. I think in many cases, the Sunbelt markets have, have begun to catch up and create uh, the, the kind of a, a, an interesting urban environment has been created in many of these markets that can attract some of the, the caliber of talent that historically would either go to San Francisco to be in tech or would go to New York to yeah. be in financial services. You're, you're now seeing some of the, that talent be interested in some of these markets of as they've urbanized and, uh, and companies are, are following the talent and, and recognizing that there's some other markets that perhaps are going to lower cost, perhaps easier to do business, and uh, and I think like having talent, you know, spread more broadly through the country than just concentrated in in those cities. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I think there's going to be three classes. So there'll be gateway cities. There'll be the Sun Belt cities that are that are the behemoth cities now. And then the third class may wind up being secondary or tertiary cities where people can not work from home, but work from a remote satellite place more sustainably. And with both housing cost and commute to work being painful and the ability to work remotely, those cities come back too. So all of them can coexist really successfully as our country expands again. No, I I think that's right. And it it is... um... 
I, I think that you know the challenges that the gateway markets have had, I think, in why companies have embraced distributing their workforce more broadly, it, it, it is it is it's not about the cost of the office real estate. It's the cost of the housing for their employees. And, yep. and with so many companies clustered so tightly together, that that is really what drove up the, the housing cost. And and so, you know, again, now the market is is rebalancing kind of more broadly as people have been more distributed. And I think you'll see some of that cost of housing, you know, perhaps recede in some of those markets. And and again, there there there's you know incredible talent on the West Coast and the Northeast. And I think those cities will continue to to thrive. They're they're just rebalancing. But but I think you know, the migration will absolutely uh, continue uh, in the Sun Belt as their exciting places to live. Yeah, of course. It's interesting to have a conversation about cost of housing driving a conversation about office, but cost of housing is a challenge in each of your cities as well as there are a challenge in the gateway cities now. So it's a national issue, which we all know about. Let's move on. From your description, you're in the role, you reposition the company, you're like chief investment officer, become CEO. And about a year or so into CEO comes COVID. And kind of, this is podcast term, but I think it's like an oh shit moment. Uh Oh, I'm now running this company. And here I am. And what are we going to do? So I'm curious to bring me from the beginning of COVID to the immediate crisis response of that as the CEO. And then let's get into how the office world has changed in more on the ground. Yeah. So I, I, again, I, I've been with the company now for 12 years. So I, so I, I had, um, you know, I transitioned uh, into that CEO role you know, internally, which, which I think helped a, a ton uh, in terms of kind of learning kind of that that role. Uh, but I, but I started it in that seat in January, I guess it was January 1st of 2019. And I think it was in April of May or 2019, we actually announced a you know, multi-billion dollar merger with a company by the name of Tier Reed. And so it, it was kind of thrown into the fire quickly. And, and so the first year was consumed with that merger and then ultimately the integration uh, of that merger. And so I, I can recall in late 2019, kind of New Year's Eve, looking forward to 2020 <laughs> with the merger, you know, generally behind us. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you started hearing kind of some of this news about something happening in, in China and, uh, and it, it hit hard and it hit fast. I, I remember being on, you know, spring break with my kids and my wife in in february of 2020 and you know right before i had left we we got the entirety of our team together uh and we do this every year but you know we've got kind of crisis management kind of committee mm-hmm. and we go through all kinds of different scenarios and we actually started talking about this but but then you know a week later i'm, I'm out of town and I, I remember getting a call from our general counsel and our head of human resources, and, and they were on the phone and, and wanted my view on a, an issue that they didn't agree with, which was, um, you know, our employees, we subsidize their parking or their mass transit, and we do it every month. And our team that was using mass transit was now asking to be able to park. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of divergent views on that and the implications and, and I, I just recall listening to this kind of 
discussion play out. And I, I finally interjected and said, I, I let, of course, let them park. And I think this is going to be the easiest decision that we're going to make over the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, that, you know, that proved to be true. And as the, you know, cities across the country and the world, you know, began to shut down, you know, that, that was a challenging moment, you know, as a, as a new CEO, but for, for any leader. And, and I think we all, you know, made the, you know, the first priority health and safety. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was an easy decision to, you know, to send everybody home uh, at the same time, right. You also had to kind of navigate through that. We still actually had to operate these buildings. Right. And so, you know, we did have to ask our, you know, our team, our operations team to continue to keep, keep the building up and running uh, because we did still have some customers, you know, utilizing their space or they were, you know, necessary operations within our buildings that had to stay open. And at the same time, that started to introduce these questions, these existential questions about office and whatever everybody, you know, come back. So, yeah, no, that was uh, that, you know, that, that was a challenging moment, but I, I'd say I had two, two things helping me. One, I, had a, I, have a, I have a terrific wife who was, you know, my daily therapist mm-hmm. support. And then we have an incredible board at Cousins that, uh, you know, was there to kind of help me and the team kind of think through kind of these issues. And our team did an amazing, an amazing job and in tough, tough circumstances, to kind of keep our connections in a remote world, kind of keep the camaraderie going, but at the same time, you know, operating these businesses or the, these properties um, in a very uncharted right. kind of territory. So let's go back to that for a few minutes. I just want to go back to March of 2020, as this is all coming together for you. You mentioned having a crisis management committee, mentioned your board being very engaged, your team being very engaged, and your wife being very engaged. So yes. talk, first, talk about each of them a little bit, because how are you then prepared? And in this particular crisis, most of the CEOs I know wound up the technology. We were prepared for that. We didn't know we would be, but we'd already automated filing cabinets and all that stuff. But just think through each of those crisis management. Do they jump in and you have plans of what to do when something's really tough? And did the board meet? weekly for a period of time because you're trying to figure something out that no one knows what the answer is to. Yeah. It, it you know, so I, I would say that the first thing that we did, I should mention our, our crisis management team, you know, it was great because we had a plan in terms of how to get technology to, you know, everybody and, and kind mm-hmm. of get the business up and running. So, so that happened, you know, almost o- overnight. And, and I'm thankful that, that, you know, as I stepped into the role, my predecessor kind of already had that going, and uh, and and so, you know, we, we were able to 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 kind of prop prop the business up, and then you know, I'll tell you that the very next thing that that we did as a company that that I think I look back on as as a as a good decision, right? If you kind of put yourself at that time, there was so much fear, mm-hmm. right? There was fear about. Um, health and safety, and then there was fear about job security and how am I going to pay the bills when there were millions of people being laid off right. all over the country. And so the, the first thing that we did, I, I recall calling 
the board together, you know, to update them on the, you know, the situation and how we were doing as a company, but, but asking them, it's, there's one thing that I think we really need to do right now is I need your support for me to go on a zoom town hall and tell their, our entire company that there will be no layoffs mm. or comp reductions over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, that we had built this company and the balance sheet that we have uh, to thrive in the good times, but survive in the, in the down times. And we needed to keep our team together. Mm-hmm. And so with, you know, full support and unequivocal support of the board, I was able very quickly to go share that with our team that let's stay focused on our customers. Let's run the business as best we can. Let's operate these buildings as, as, as well as we can for our customers and let's stay focused on the longer term strategy. And that, that helped us kind of navigate the last three years as then you kind of, as you got into COVID and you got into the kind of the great resignation, a lot of those challenges, I, I feel that our company was able to stay connected and together and, and, and that, that, I'm very thankful for that support of our board to provide those assurances to our team. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your wife. I just would go there for a minute because it's just funny that you did. People don't. Oh, yeah. I, I throw, and I throw my kids in there as well. Yeah. It, 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 it's a, um, you know, I feel very fortunate to be, you know, at Cousins Properties. I, I, I love the real estate world. I enjoy my job a ton. And I like to talk about it at home. And, uh, and, and I've got a family that now understands the business pretty well. That they do. And, uh, and, and so they're extremely helpful, you know, to me as I try to think about, you know, a lot of these complex situations, but then just the emotional support of, uh, you know, being able to share kind of what's happening with somebody in, in a vulnerable well, uh, way and know that they're there. And we spend a lot of time on the couch at night uh, chatting about, about what's happening. Yeah, it's totally true. It, it's I wrote down the word dizzy because when when it first happened, you get dizzy with disorientation, particularly the fear part, and it's the fear part about your personal health, and that's the fear part about what's going to happen to your business, then what's going to happen to your people, and what's going to happen to your tenants. And there were so many variables for a while that the uncertainties are so hard to then start to navigate back through. You're putting a stake in the ground to say, hey, you're all going to be here for a year or whatever. That's a blessing because that gives someone a leg to stand on for the business. That's right. And I, I, as I said, our, our, you know, we kind of wrote down some kind of North Stars at Cousins early on in the, in the pandemic. And, and, you know, there were a couple of them that, that I still have on my, my desk. Which, you know, we, we said we're going to take care of our team and we're going to take care of our customer and everything else will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And another one that we wrote down was this, this was a pandemic. This was, you know, a, a crazy environment. And we said, when all the dust settles and people look back, we want to feel proud of, of how cousins navigated mm-hmm. that crisis and to handle it with class and grace as best we could. Mm-hmm. But we just felt like people were going to look back and they're going to remember how you behaved in that time. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of goes back to our founder, Tom Cousins and, and, you know, integrity being at the, the core of our company. Yeah. 
And you're lucky because you went into this with having fixed your balance sheet. So you went into it with strength less than fear, particularly immediate uh-ohs from particularly a balance sheet standpoint, because that changes the whole dynamic. For sure. And um, it was, never forget, we, we had we had a, a building under contract to sell in Charlotte for you know over $400 million that would become what is now truest corporate headquarters in Charlotte. And, mm-hmm. and so that was, that was a lot of cash coming in. We, we had a lot of nervous days and nights with, with, with that close in, in that environment. And fortunately it was such a strategic transaction for them, but that brought in $400 million. And so any concerns we had about the balance sheet or liquidity you know, that, that we, we weren't losing sleep over that anymore, you know, and then I'd say that the, the while, while the world stayed shut, you know, the capital markets pretty quickly opened back up with all of the support from the federal government and the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we made kind of another strategic bet that, you know, as we looked at the trends driving our business long term, you know, putting aside all the offices were shut, but this migration to the Sunbelt and the flight to quality you know, we took a view that on the other side of COVID, whatever that would look like, the flight to quality was only going to intensify. Uh-huh. I remember having, you know, a, a, a discussion with our board and, and we were at that point having, if not weekly, every other week calls with the board. And, and we said, you know, the team's kind of gotten together and we feel like we need to, the capital markets, believe it or not, are open, even though nobody's using the buildings, but the capital markets is open and, and, you know, we feel like we need to start selling and moving out what were our bottom, you know, 10% of the assets that we owned. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll never forget kind of the reaction from our, our board and our board chair as they listen. And I'm thinking they must, they're going to, they're going to think we're crazy that we're going to go try to sell and buy and move a bunch of real estate in the middle of the pandemic. And, and their reaction was, was move, go faster. So let's talk about that. And so how do you have the conviction during a time of massive uncertainty? And maybe it's because you're in the Sun Belt, but I'm sitting in San Francisco. So we didn't have conviction about anything in San Francisco because fear of that asset class was pretty high, still is. And pricing is unknown still. I think we finally hit a bottom place. So I think we have some price discovery. But pricing investments and what people would want in an office building was very unclear in twenty late 2020 and early 21. You knew it was a flight to quality, but still you're going to make some big bets about that. So talk about how you knew what to do and were those the right bets. Was quality newly defined post-COVID or in COVID than it was prior to COVID? And how has that market changed? How, what do tenants want to do now, but also then? That's a lot of questions at once, but it gets to the same point. Yeah. I, so, you know, fr- from our perspective as, as a publicly traded you know, REIT, we, we, you know, we, it wasn't as, as if we were sitting there with a fresh you know, pile of cash and a new investment fund. And, you know, we, we were sitting there saying uh, we weren't necessarily making a call on officer pricing, we just knew that when the dust settled, we wanted to own higher quality office than lower quality office. Fair deal. And that we go make that trade as fast as we can. Um, and so that that's what we did. We we kind of identified the the 
you know, as I said, kind of the bottom 10% or so of the portfolio. And from 2020 through kind of 2021, we sold $1.3 billion of kind of our lowest quality office. And we redeployed that into the highest quality office. And, and we did it through a combination of acquisitions of recently developed buildings in great locations and in submarkets where we already had a presence <laughs> that had had kind of a great uh, quality inside the building but also had kind of vibrant neighborhood and outdoor space around it and and we also uh, started you know a handful of new development projects that uh, you know that we're built you know developing ourselves mm-hmm. and so we redeployed that capital into what we thought were best of breed office buildings of, of the future and and I'd characterize kind of broadly you know the trade we made was we were we were kind of selling older and taller taller buildings and replacing them with new and smaller buildings and so talk about class a newer smaller talk about when you make the bet not just to buy an asset but the bet that you're putting money into an ad you're putting new money and renovation money into an asset or upgrading money or new construction money now you're making a bet on your thesis of what defines great so talk more about that yeah again i think um I'd say the, the the foundation of everything that we do at Cousins start, starts with our customer. And mm-hmm. so we spend a whole lot of time in those conversations, you know, not just talking about leasing space, but spending time with them and what's what's important, you know, to them. Mm-hmm. What do they want the space to look like? Where do they want it to be? And And I think, you know, what we continued to hear was, you know, they wanted more experiential buildings and places. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't want just spaces. They wanted places is kind of one way to put it. And, you know, they wanted the same amenities, the gym and the conference center, you know, et cetera. But they wanted, you know, interesting outdoor places. They they wanted to be able to walk out the front door and have multiple dining and restaurant options. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted the, the, you know, the buildings to feel kind of more approachable and authentic. And, and so we, we, we listened to kind of that feedback and then, uh, as I said, made the decision to, you know, sell things that were predominantly older and taller, but felt like didn't have that experience and, and kind of redeploy it into, you know, very specifically what our customers wanted. <laughs> it's funny, in, in the middle of the pandemic, I think this is the middle of the pandemic, I was in D.C. and I did an interview on Leading Voices. It, there, this will come home to roost with you for a couple of reasons, but I did an interview with Jody McLean from from Edens, and we did it in a, a brand new car building in Union Market downtown DC or in, in DC, and hadn't been open yet. So we did this like a week before they opened the building, and we went into their top floor where they had a podcast studio, and the top floor was like a lounge at a hotel, as was the ground floor was a lounge in a hotel. Both felt so welcoming and exciting to be in, and they were surrounded by Union Market where there's more great restaurants than almost anywhere in D.C. That sounds like your thesis. Of course, it's car properties, but you used to work there, so I'm allowed to bring them up. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it is. It's, it's about, you know, an experience. And, you know, again, there, there's so much of kind of work that I think folks have now identified can be done remotely, and that's kind of the transaction or, or the task component of 
you know, a job. But but as I talk to kind of CEOs and leadership teams, you know, throughout our portfolio in in our markets, you know, I think companies are focused on you know what what is kind of beyond just the tasks and building culture, building camaraderie. Yep fostering relationships and, and i'd say at the very top of the list is is mentoring kind yeah. of young talent and and so i think you know it's kind of those type of of spaces and places that i think naturally draw more people together and and i think are increasingly attracting a you know a greater percentage of the the demand and and so that has played well and been a huge tailwind for you know the portfolio that that we've put together it's interesting if you put in mind the things you just said mentoring collaboration building relationships as the purpose of going in the office people talk about this stuff all the time how many days a week is going to be the new normal we could talk about that a little bit but if you think of those purposes that will draw people together and what will draw them towards those purposes then the design elements become clear. They're different than the design elements of when I was a kid 200 years ago because it was ugly and cubes and not fun and not interesting, and, but you just had to, you had to work. Yeah. But now you want to make people go there because they do have a choice of whether to be home or not. That, that's right. And, and again, I think right, if you're kind of the, the CEO of a, a large company, a user of office space, Again, I think probably one of the misconceptions at the moment is, you know, working from home, you can, you know, save on the cost of your office real estate. But, but really, you know, as we talk to leadership within our customer base, the cost of recruiting and retaining and training talent is multiples of the cost of their office expense. <laughs> and so, I, I think there there are you know some fear at companies, and and I think now the data over time is starting to kind of prove out that you know they're seeing higher attrition and kind of less development, kind of a workforce that's entirely remote, mm -hmm. and so that that's kind of the urge to get folks back into the office at least most of the time is so that kind of that learning that training. And, you know, that collaboration can can happen and therefore less attrition, more productivity and a more advancement amongst their workforce uh, into that will continue to kind of grow within an organization. You know, that that saves them money. Mm -hmm. let's, let's stick with this for a minute. And then I want to change subjects. But on this one. I, I attended a ULI governor's thing a couple months at the last ULI meeting in Toronto, and they were we had a McKinsey study talking about what the new normal will be, and I'm pretty sure the new normal was not four and a half days of work on average, and I think they said it was four and a half, not five. Everyone thinks it was five, but it was four and a half or four, and it's going to be three and a half. Get used to it. And a lot of people react against that and say, no, it's going to be five. We're going to insist on five. We're going to make it be five. We're going to have our business model based on five, which I think is just unrealistic, particularly because averages are average, not the norm for everybody. But how much are you in the business of helping your tenants think about what workforce means? And how yeah. much do your buildings help define what those behaviors might look like? 
Yeah, no question. I, I, all of our companies are using, you know, their physical space to kind of help define and articulate their culture. And there's so much speculation right now, as you mentioned, kind of what's the number? Is it going to be four and a half days or is it going to be three days or three and a half? And I, you know, at, at Cousins, we, we've kind of quit trying to prognosticate yeah. that because I think it's also it will continue to evolve and ebb and flow. You know, it might it might be three days or three and a half days a week now, but in five years it could be four. I, I think there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot in there and there's a lot of different things going on. I I, I personally, in the conversations we have with our customers today, I, I actually think it's going to be bifurcated. In that, I think there's going to be. I'd say, as I talk to CEOs of you know Fortune 500 companies and on to small companies, that that absolutely wants the core of their team kind of back most of the time. And whether that's four days or five days, I, I don't really think it matters. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's kind of a growing acceptance that perhaps some of the more back office mm-hmm. uses or the call centers workers that primarily are just doing tasks mm-hmm. that in a sense they, they become more comfortable that attracting and retaining that talent is just impossible and there's there's just going to be higher turnover and almost convert those folks to gig workers yep and allow them to work kind of more remotely but i think the core of most businesses you know again I, whether it's three and a half days or four and a half days or five days i, I don't know that it's critically important to, you know, our business, uh, because most of these companies have to plan for the peak. And I think kind of the notion that, you know, you need to be in three days a week and you kind of pick the days, even, I mean, companies are getting more intentional and saying the whole point is being together. So everybody needs to be together. And, um, and so they need the same amount of space in the absence of hoteling. So if, if one were to hotel, you could theoretically, use less space, but if one is not using hoteling, and I think most of the feedback on hoteling is generally pretty negative, mm-hmm. even if workers are in three and a half days a week, they need the same amount of space if they were in there for five days a week. Yeah, it's interesting. We should move on to the next subject, but when I grew up in the business, gosh, when I would move office space, I would have about 100 pictures to take somewhere else and a hundred books to take somewhere else. And my dictionary, which I still have on my wall over here for some reason, because I haven't used it in years because I use Google, but those behaviors have changed. So even when they come into a new office, it's not going to have a hundred pictures on the wall of everything they've ever done. It will still be light. It will still be flexible, but they're still going to be in office and they're going to still be in your office because you have great office space. So it begs the question of what happens to all the obsolete office and that's not your business, but it's adjacent to your business and it's your sector and your sector gets pulled by what happens to that stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it, just to kind of reiterate the point, I, our, our, our strategy has been to, to own buildings in of the quality and in the locations that attract companies and people whose lifestyle revolves around being in the office. Right. And, and that's kind of generally what, what we're finding. And, you know, if you walk into one of our buildings at lunch, you know, probably looks a lot different than, again, the type of building that you're describing, kind of the older vintage commodity, uh, uninspiring place. And, and I think, 
right? There's going to be a lot of stuff, things that play out there and we can chat about it. And for, and, and, and all the, you know, a lot of the stories are, are accurate about kind of the pending challenges, you know, in that space. But, but I think it's, I, I think it's creating a misunderstanding and maybe an overgeneralization office. Mm-hmm. And, but I, but I think particularly in that space, you know, I, I heard a, somebody make the comment recently, and, and I really agree with it, that, you know, the, the office market isn't necessarily oversupplied, it's under demolished. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of step back and, and kind of think about that and, and what that means and why, if you look at other sectors, whether it's industrial or apartments or retail, probably three, four or 5% of that inventory is demolished every year. Mm. And it's, and if you think about that, the why it's, that's typically horizontal product or product that's on a one-year lease. The challenge in the office space is you build these really tall structures from 1980, might be a million square feet, but you can't really knock it down if it's 30% leased mm-hmm. for eight years. And so that, that, as I said, has kind of led to this kind of a, a sector that's, that's, that's perhaps under demolished and it drags down the statistics of, of all the other uh, product. But, but I think now there's a, a more global recognition that kind of customer demand and the capital markets are not going to support this product anymore. Mm-hmm. And so what happens to it, you know, certain buildings will get converted, whether it's residential, combination of residential and hotel, some of it will just get knocked down. And, and I think that's easier to do in a suburban context. And so I think you'll see a lot of suburban office knocked down and converted to townhomes and homes and apartments and mixed use, you know, in the urban context, you know, as we've tracked some markets where some of this has happened, downtown Dallas is a good market to, to look at where, mm-hmm. where that downtown has really migrated to uptown Dallas. And so it's older vintage buildings have, have been kind of going through this over the last 10 years. And I mean, ultimately, Market forces will ultimately dictate a value at which somebody can buy that, put it in the necessary capital to turn it into, you know, something else. So it's a, it's truly a function of price. Uh, and so I think some of that property is unfortunately on a steady decline in value till it can get to a clearing price that can turn into something else. And some of those can happen quickly. Others, if you're, you know, you're stuck with, 30% of the, the property rented for eight more years, it's it's going to be, uh, it's going to take time. Right. Although those tenants may want to get into something more attractive anyhow. So those are those are good questions. And it's interesting, we had on our podcast, Post Brothers, who were, renov- who were repositioning two office buildings in D- D.C., in the urban part of D.C., into residential. So many people have talked about how the repositioning into resi isn't going to work. It's not natural. It's too expensive in the buildings. But at the right price per pound, in some buildings, you can do it. So there's feasibility around that. Also, the last two episodes on Leading Voices were about carbon in real estate. And the embedded carbon in some of these buildings will have cities saying, hey, we, we don't want to just tear them down and waste all of that embedded carbon, which isn't your problem, but got that overhang of too much office space is kind of your problem in your sector. It's not like malls where, you know, regional malls need to go away or change and only a third of them should be there. 
But an office, you're adjacent to those obsolete office buildings in downtown areas. So, so they hurt you. For they, they, well, I'd say they hurt everyone. Right. Yeah, yeah. They hurt the city, right? They hurt the, you know, the apartment, new apartment towers next door, kind of the retail. But, but I do think that, again, I, I think as a whole, in a world where we're increasingly focused on kind of environmental issues, using what's already been built is far better than, you know, building something new. And I, I do think, you know, in time, uh, as things do get cheap enough, people will find out all kinds of interesting, creative, creative ways to adapt and reuse kind of what's there. And it, it'll be right. We're seeing in some markets where it's a combination of things where, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they keep 150,000 square feet of office and they turn 300,000 square feet into multifamily and there's a couple floors of hotels. I mean, there's all all kinds of interesting things you can do when you get to a price yep. that, you know, makes those projects financially viable. And, and as I said, unfortunately, you know, for, for the owners and lenders on some of those properties, they're on that journey to find that clearing price where mm-hmm. it's turned into something else. Uh, I, I think from day to day for for our business here at Cousins, it is um, I'd say it's it's less directly it less directly impacts our business from a leasing and what are rental rates than it does just from an overall perception of the industry. And, and what I mean by that is. Before the pandemic, there were certain of those buildings and, you know, the tenant rep is telling you that, you know, hey, you're competing with the 1980s building across the street. I I think in this environment, even the most aggressive tenant rep will (laughs) acknowledge that that's not not a reality. And so when we look at the data, the market data in Atlanta, Georgia or Austin, Texas, Mm-hmm. You know, we might look at those overall statistics, but we do our own work and refine it down into what what is actually uh, viable, mm-hmm. competitive product. And and I think when you kind of peel back the you know a, a layer or two, you start to see a much tighter market for higher quality assets. I think it's really true, especially when you say higher quality assets. And we're not going to get to this question, but I'll just make a point out a comment, which is when we start thinking about this and start thinking about that portfolio in our in our business, it's different downtown obsolete office, 80s product in downtown or 80s class B product downtown means a different thing than 70s and 80s product in suburbs that are three stories and just ugly and shouldn't be there. They're different problems to solve, each of which will have to be solved because empty buildings don't work. That's right. And I think this, the suburban challenge will be easier to solve than the urban challenge. Absolutely true. Okay, let's totally change the subject. And leading voices used to be about career journeys. So we started the whole conversation with how do you get here? What did you do? And now we save it for the last five minutes of each conversation. And we've touched on your background a little bit, but just quickly, I'm so, you know, we're all so curious, how do people get to be CEO of a meaningful company? How did you start your career? How did you get into real estate? What was the first bridge into real estate for you? My you know, journey, I guess, to CEO is probably because they couldn't find anybody else that wanted the job. <laughs> uh, so they, they ended up with me. But I, um, you know, before I went back to, to business school, I, I was in the kind of financial investment banking type world. And I, and I got a ton of great experience you know, but but didn't find the what the work that I was doing that the the, the ultimate product was interesting to me. And mm-hmm. I grew up in Atlanta, which is which is a 
pretty heavy real estate town and and saw lots of the, the dads of friends that I had that were in the real estate business. And and you've had Le- Leonard Wood on, on your podcast and, and he yep. was one of those. And it just looked like they were doing interesting financial and investment type work, but on something that was entirely tangible. And and for me, I've got a, a mind that, that sometimes, you know, go, goes too much. Uh, but, you know, I enjoy the real estate aspect because I could be on a work trip or I could be on a personal trip with the family and there's real estate everywhere. And that just kind of always gives me something to think about, kind of engage my mind. And and so I made the decision coming out of um, out of, of business school to, to get into the, the real estate world because I, I loved that product and I had found it was also very much a collegial, while competitive, a collegial relationship oriented business. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was fortunate to have you know, many different mentors and friends that that helped me along. You know, Ray Ritchie at, at Boston Properties, uh, son is is a good friend, and you know he took me under my wing when I was in D.C. Mm-hmm. and um, And so I found, yeah, I found the the, the business uh, fascinating. And uh, over time, I think that you know the 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 you know real estate is one. It's a culture of people trying to help others out while they're also competing and and that that opened up you know those relationships opened up a lot of doors for me it's interesting you said this twice in two different ways you say it's a business that's collegial relationship oriented business and culture of people helping each other out where they're competing and it's absolutely true it's the one of the things i love and it makes me able to be successful as a recruiter because people want to know each other and they're help they're generally helpful there are businesses in our economy that have a very different tenor 100 percent either you're competitive or it's just get your job done or work is work and work sucks but real estate does have those attributes yeah i I found with real estate you know it it is a fragmented business that you know there's no one place to go to get kind of perfect information it's kind of housed in the minds of of a bunch of different people and so what what attracted me to the business is if you had a lot of relationships and a lot of friends and you spent time with them, you can pick up a lot of different nuggets of information and connect dots to try to get ahead and, mm-hmm. you know, go, go and skate where the puck is heading. It's a matter if you're willing to put in kind of the time and the work and the effort to do it. And so kind of that inefficiency of, of kind of information and, and trying to, you know, get, get, build that network of, of, of relationships and friends and, and over time be able to, you know, gl- glean insight as to where the world is heading, where the market is heading, importantly, where is opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's funny. We started our conversation talking about Cousins repositioning itself around where's the puck heading. So interesting. Okay. So quickly, business school, then car properties, then Morgan Stanley. Uh, car, car America, which, yep. which was the publicly uh, traded REIT that Oliver Carr's brother, Tom Carr, ran. So I, yeah. so I was there for, for a couple of years, had a great experience. Uh, my wife and I were living in D.C., coming out of uh, business school in Charlottesville. I was then recruited down after a couple of years, kind of an, what I thought was an interesting opportunity to join a, a regional office for Morgan Stanley's real estate private equity business in, in Atlanta. And so my wife and I both grew up 
in, in this city. So the opportunity to come home and work for a brand of the quality of Morgan Stanley and do it in Atlanta sounded you know too good to be true. Now and, that regional office had been the headquarters of the companies they bought, I think. Like the Equitable is probably the, one. The, the, the Lendlease business. That's exactly that's right. right. Um, so I joined shortly after that that had happened. And and so it was great. We were home in Atlanta, two and a half years. We we had just had our first child. I think Connor was about six months old. And I came home one day and, and I, I told Amy, I said, it, it kind of feels like we're moving to New York. Mm-hmm. And, and she looked at me and an ex, expletive slipped out of her mouth. And I said, is New York that bad? And she said, no, I just realized I probably shouldn't have quit my job to stay home last week, I, I could have done it this week and it'd be, it would be your fault. Uh, and so she retired from her banking job, but we packed up the Volvo station wagon and we drove up to New York uh, to join Morgan Stanley's New York office, which they'd asked us to do. And at the time it was supposed to be a six month stint just to get the opportunity to spend time in the, in the headquarters and develop more relationships. We kind of ran into the you know, the, the lead into the global financial crisis and, and all the aftermath of that. Uh, and so we ended up spending over five years. Which in, was in particularly tough for Morgan Stanley's real estate group. N- no doubt. And so I saw a lot of things kind of on the ride up, a lot of things on the ride down. And I feel so fortunate to have been there, you know, in that environment, a lot of hard work, you know, some tough times. We still managed to have fun and a, it's a great collegial group. But man, you grew up fast up there. And and I think a lot of what I learned over those five years, without question, informed uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the perspective I have today in terms of, you know, the mm-hmm. business and look at the, you know, the balance sheet and, um, you know, thinking about downside. And, and that that has served me well. But but it was a great experience up there. I still have some very close friends. Uh, up in New York. And, and now a lot of the Morgan Stanley team, while you know, st- still there, a lot of them in some capacity, a lot of us is spread out around the country. And, and it's really built a great alumni network. Yeah, it's one of the things we talked about before we started taping the conversation was different alumni networks from different companies have different levels of value. And I find in my search career, one of the best value alumni clubs is Morgan Stanley because you're smart to begin with. So within that smart to begin with team that have gone through some ups and downs, you wind up having a great group of people who want to work, or in this case, who want to work together, who aren't competitive, who have some level of coordination, cooperation. Hey, we're going to help you on the next deal thing yep. that really you could track through your career. Yeah, for sure. I, I'd say there, there's probably a lot of fatigue here at, at Cousins when you know some deal, something comes up, and I say, let me call so-and-so. That's one of my good friends from Morgan Stanley. And they're like, we, <laughs> how many friends from you know, Morgan Stanley do you have? But they're, they're, it, it was a great group. It was a ter- terrific experience and you know, feel fortunate to have had that opportunity. Cool. And then you had the opportunity to come home to Atlanta to work at Cousins. And we're picking back up to the story that we started earlier. I, I did. It, Cousins and, and Morgan Stanley have had you know, very, a, a very close relationship for many years, and it really goes back to our founder, Tom Cousins, and, and uh, J- John Mack, who, who ran the firm, Morgan Stanley, when I was there, for some time sat on the board of, of Cousins. And so you know, there, there, was, there, was a, there was a close business relationship, and uh, during the, the financial crisis, 
I uh, had, the, had the opportunity to work with the Cousins team on a, a recapitalization of a, an office building uh, here in, in Atlanta that um, you know was probably ill-timed and over-levered uh, from Cousins, and, and Morgan Stanley stepped in with some fresh capital to 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 recapitalize that building. And you know, in that process, I got to know the team here and, and my predecessor in the CEO role at, at, at Cousins. And we developed a great relationship. And, you know, over the course of a couple of years, you know, discussions about, um, you know, me, me coming back home to Atlanta to join Cousins kind of came about. And, you know, we, we were at a point, as I said, I was having a great experience in New York. We loved being there, but we were, the kids were of an age where kind of the, the move to the suburbs was on the table. And I'll never forget, you know, as we were talking about that, my, my wife looked at me once and said, if you're going to move me again, can we just move home and take that cousin's opportunity? And, and we did. And, uh, and it's, it's been great to, to be back home amongst kind of friends and family. Wonderful. So two more questions before we wrap up. Uh, you're a relatively young CEO, and so it's early to talk about legacy, but look forward over the next 10, 15 years of your career. W- what story do you want told in that next f- 10 to 15 years? Well, I'd probably focus less on the kind of my story, and I'd focus on the cousin's story. And I, at the company, we, we talk you know a lot about, as I mentioned, taking care of our customers taking care of our team and at the same time making a great return for for our investors and so that is forefront on our mind every day is is how do we drive kind of earnings and share price for, for our investors but but we try to do that in a way that you know if if we take great care of those customers and they want to lease space in a cousin's properties building We'll, we'll get that done if we're taking care of our team, right? Who shows up every day, motivated, uh, excited to drive results. And so I, I think that's kind of the priority that, that we focus on is go, go, go create a, a culture for high performers and take care of that team. They're going to drive excellent service for our customers. And if we do those two things, the, the, the returns over time, mm-hmm. that's kind of three areas of importance for us. But then then we always say at the company while we're doing that, we want to make an impact on the skyline, mm. but we want to make an impact as well in the communities in which we operate. And so there, there's very much a you know service oriented aspect of, of our business. And you know we feel like we, we've been fortunate. We want to make sure we're we're doing things in the community through the buildings and the places that we create. But but you know, other areas where we can be helpful to, to help our cities thrive. And if we do that, again, back to the, you know, the, the kind of two cornerstones of, of our strategy, flight to quality, but a migration of the Sun Belt. So if we can kind of continue to make an impact and make Atlanta better, make Austin better, Charlotte better, hopefully more, more customers and more demand will follow for our, for our buildings. That sounds wonderful. It's interesting. One of the debates I have both on Leading Voices and as I talk to clients and customers all the time is the difference between the value of the real estate platform and the real estate itself. What's the business mean? What's the meaning of the business, the meaning of the culture? And what's the meaning of this collection of assets? 
Any, any comments to that dichotomy as you balance between the two of them in your leadership? Yeah, it is. Um, and I think how those are valued varies, you know, over time in, in certain markets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes the uh, individual assets uh, are worth, could be worth more than the sum and that, 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 but, but I think we're, we're trying to run this business for, as I said, for, for the long term and, and long term value creation. And so we, we always start with the culture first. And as I said, when I, when I took over this role and didn't really know kind of what my job was, like no, nobody ever kind of said this is the, mm-hmm. the job description. I, I spent a little time and, and kind of wrote my own. I wrote that job description as first to help define the strategy mm-hmm. of the company. Number two is get kind of excellent people in the right seats. And then really the, the third and last was communicate, communicate, communicate. And, and so, you know, I still kind of think about that kind of every day as I, as I come to work and try to organize my day around kind of those three tenets. But, but it, it kind of comes back to, as I said, in that job description, it's the team. And if we get the team right and we take care of them, they will take great care of our customers and they will then drive great value for our shareholders. And that, that's kind of the, the priority. The, if, if the team is right, customers are right, uh, we'll get the, pro- you know, the, the properties, will will take care of themselves. I believe that. They're great North Stars. So the last question on leading voices always is, what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? I'd say to be curious. As I mentioned, it, it's a it's a business that ultimately the folks that have got the most information usually win. Hmm. And so, you know, if you're curious and you're thinking and you're looking around and you're digging and you're meeting people, you're talking to people, you, you can ha- have perhaps more information than than somebody else to, to connect dots and, and, and see, you know, see what's coming next, see opportunity around the horizon that, that perhaps, you know, others don't. Yeah, you know, a, a couple other kind of quick pieces of I always tell young people and I still tell myself is is write down a plan, but write it in pencil, not pen, because as the situation changes or facts and circumstances change, you, you gotta be willing to pivot. <laughs> and you gotta be willing to make a change. And then the la- the last thing I always share with young people is is, is to be intentional kind of know what trade you're making. And, you know, I remember coming out of, you know, business school and thinking about where to go and, and what opportunities to pursue. You know, I, I was from Atlanta. And so there was a natural pull to try to come back to Atlanta after business school. I had many friends that did the same. And I had an intentional conversation with my wife when we, we decided, do we want to look for jobs and draw a circle around the city of Atlanta? Or are we going to be or do we just want to follow the career and be open to any geography? And so that was a very intentional decision that we made mm-hmm. that changed, you know, the course of our lives and our career that led us to DC and led us to a lot of other things. And and so it was it was an intentional choice. And I, I feel like sometimes as you talk to young people, you, you can sometimes see that they're they're not getting specific enough and really thinking about what is the real decision that I'm making and do that intentionally. Yeah. It's brilliant. Those are three wonderful pieces of wisdom. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you for the podcast and really appreciate your having joined us today. 
Matt, I, as I said, appreciate you thinking of me and, and Cousins Properties. We're big fans of the podcast and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to, to listening to future episodes down the road. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.